Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the badly delayed episode 4-436 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today's show is about farming. It's about growing things. It's about the late summer harvest of ideas and endurance. We have a chat with retired professional cyclist Tyler Wren, who has started a post-pro-life around supporting local farms in Vermont called Farm to Fork Fitness. Nice alliteration there. I ran into him because I've been doing a a lot of uh, long bike rides, at least once a week. And I think about the impact that the current apocalypse has had on these local farms and families in these rural farming communities. And with the restaurants closed, it really impacts these specialized growers really adversely. You know, that specialized stuff, the local stuff, that's the good stuff, the good-for-you stuff. And I'd hate to see even more of them disappear, see even more of these beautiful tracts of rural land that you see when you're out on your ride, see that turned into vacation condos and parking lots. In section one, I'm going to muse on what my running has taught me lately and lately being the month of July, as I push through the heat and humidity. In section two, I'm going to talk about the history of agriculture. Yeah, that's right, because that's our theme, right? You need themes. I'm doing just fine. I'm just busy with work and training, and my wife needing me to do pointless man things like paint the house. It all stacks up, and you, you my unfortunate friends, are made to suffer the vacuum of my attentions. But I'm healthy. All he's healthy. He's right here. He's, he's getting pets as we talk. We've been getting out uh, and getting in a lot of miles on the trails. I'm starting to move into some fairly good volume as I target running the Wapak and Back with Eric and anyone else who wants to join next month. More on that in the outro. But my own garden... It's a hit and miss year. I planted a lot of squash because squash is always good, right? Can't go wrong with squash, but it seems to have gotten a late start. I'm only getting a few squash, whereas in other years, I've gotten piles of zucchini and summer squash. This year, only a few have battled through, and now the root borers are into them. They're into the stalks, and that usually kills anything that's left. And my berry patch has been less than spectacular. I have a very mature and robust patch of red raspberries. These are hybrids, and they have multiple sets of large berries multiple times a year. But I've also got a bunch of the native black raspberry canes that are muscling their way into my garden like unwanted ruffians at a neighborhood genteel barbecue. Both of these typically overwhelm me with berries, but not this year. We seem to have a boom in wildlife. Yeah, and something has eaten most of my raspberries. I think it's the birds. 
I'm getting the black raspberries now, but they are getting poached as well. In other years, I would pull several pints a week out of the patch. This year, I've salvaged barely enough to flavor a few bowls of oatmeal. My tomatoes are coming on now, a few weeks late. I'm keeping an eye on those, too, because I have a chipmunk problem. Now, chipmunks don't necessarily eat your tomatoes and your squash, but they will bite into them. They, like, taste them, like they want the water or something. And the rodents also, they burrow around in the beds, and they rip up the plants in general. They got my curly parsley. I had it growing in a pot in my garden, and something burrowed into the pot and ate the root. Left the parsley, ate the root. The next day, they came back and ate the parsley. Not sure whether that was the chipmunk or some other kind of rodent. It was a very precisely executed crime. I suspect it was on orders of the rodent syndicate. Understand that my garden is heavily fortified. This isn't my first rodent rodeo. I've got a four-foot fence with chicken wire buried into the ground, and that keeps the woodchucks and the rabbits out. Speaking of which, rabbits and woodchucks, I've given up on even trying to trap the woodchucks and rabbits in the yard this year. There's so many of them, it would be pointless. So there's really only one reasonable solution. I'm going to have to get a falcon. Yep, I'll stand out there like an angry old god, whisper something to my hooded assassin, and then let fly my falcon to swoop down and rain terror from above on all the various and sundry critters that impede my green thumb. I will be the purveyor of the raptor rodent apocalypse. Yep. I've got some cucumbers coming, but those are late and they're small. I have some pepper plants that seem to be doing well. I replanted some beans that never came up and should have some beans to eat at the end of the week or so. I mean, the only successful plant in my garden is the kale. Successful in the sense that I've got enough if I want to eat kale for lunch. But the challenge with the kale is that it gets the kale worms. And you can either spray them or try to pick them off. It's a battle that is currently about a tie. Each day I go out and I pick off and squish as many as I can find. But each day the kale is full of holes like Swiss cheese. So that's it. Hours of gardening. To produce a handful of berries and some buggy kale. If I was farming for a living, I would have starved to death years ago. Each day I go out. Because I'm working from home in the apocalypse, and I gather whatever seems to be ripe enough for my lunch salad. I try to scrub the worms off the kale, but I know I'm eating a lot of bugs in my salads, and it's probably good for me. They recently re-examined human coprolites from the Paisley Caves in Oregon. These had been dated to more than 14,000 years old. The great glaciers at that time were beating a hasty retreat. But the trouble they had was that everyone thought Homo sapiens only arrived in the Americas 13,000 years ago. So they wrote these coprolites off as animal scat that was tainted by human handling. But recently, after re-examining them, they discovered that this was indeed human poop from 14,000 years ago. They were able to section that poop and see what we were eating as hunters and gatherers. And it turns out there wasn't a lot of mastodon and buffalo. Sure, there was the occasional bit of mammoth, but it was mostly plants and seeds and rodents and a fair number of insect carapaces. So it would seem I haven't progressed too far from there with my own gardening. Think about that today as we talk about farming. We think about farming. I have the advantage of water. And I'm probably pulling, what, 180 calories of vegetables out of my garden on any given day? Think about the early farmers who had to grow enough calories to last a whole year. And and that after giving 30% to some tyrant. It's not an easy job. But there is something worthy about it. 
There's something basic, something real about getting your hands into the hot, wet soil and creating, nurturing these green things. Weeding is contemplative as well. And picking that perfect heirloom tomato warm from the vine, that's an act of fulfillment. And to be one of those self-important jerks who like to quote people, Cahill Gilbrain said, And forget not, the earth delights to feel your bare feet, and the wind longs to play with your hair. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, my friends, here's a piece I wrote called What Running Taught Me This Week, and it's subtitled Being the Vessel. Writer's block. Is there such a thing? Some people say no. They say you're just being lazy or scared or some other trait that dishonors the art. They use those quotes that are the equivalent of, there are no bad weather days, just soft athletes. You know, no pain, no gain. I hear them. I do. But in my creative process, I wait for the voice of the muse. And sometimes they are quiet. Or more exactly, sometimes their soft inspiration is drowned out by the noisy urgency of life. Writer's block comes when you don't listen, or you get so caught up in self and outcomes that you forget to pick up the quill, the stylus, the keyboard. Then the momentum of not doing starts to outweigh the urgency of doing. I've been writing about endurance sports for about 25 years now. It used to flow so freely from experience. In the beginning, there was so much I needed to share with you. The words and topics forced themselves onto the page. I had no choice. The challenge then was there was too much to say, and I spent most of my time teasing organization out of the messy piles of experience. Once all that ground was tilled and turned, I began to look for nuances. What could I say differently about that specific hill workout or trail run? I began to unpack new adventures that had a narrative of their own. The ever-popular race reporting that we all love. And the more disastrous the race, the better. I struggle now, I suppose, as I move into the twilight of my endurance career to find new and interesting things to share with you. I try to force my stories into what I think you'll want and need and find useful. But how many times can you write the same advice about shoes or Achilles tendons? Unless, of course, you're that running magazine, then the answer is once a quarter like clockwork. In the current version of this podcast, which I specifically created to force me to write creatively... I set myself a goal of one 1,500-word article relating to endurance sports every fortnight. That should be easy, but I find recently to be a constraint. I wait here for inspiration. And inspiration comes when I'm out in my runs. Inspiration comes when I actively listen. So what did the muses whisper over these last few weeks? What was the conversation? The conversations were about mortality and pain and untold gifts. The first thing they told me was that running in the heat is hard. Yeah, I learn this every year, right? More so when I get older. As I ran down to the car dealership last week to pick up my truck and give $1,000 to the economy for, ironically, the pleasure of functioning air conditioning, I felt the heat. On the busy road in the heat of the late afternoon sun. Baking sun above, hot tarmac below, only four miles. No pace required, literally just running an errand. The heat busted me. It busted my pace. My legs ached, my head swam, I walked. Sure, it was a long week with a lot of miles, but come on, four miles? That should be a stroll. The heat doesn't care how experienced you are. 
The heat demands respect and takes its toll. And I smiled as I walked because it was okay. It was all good. The heat could beat me down and steal my precious bodily fluids. But here I was trotting down the road anyhow, privileged and fit, fit enough and able to appreciate those gifts that brought me here. Now the second thing my muses whispered to me this past few weeks is that falling down hurts. As I ground out these long days in the trails, my legs were tired. These weeks, I pushed my mileage on top of my busy life through the heat and humidity, deep in the technical trials and trails. The combination of fatigue, hurry, and I suppose age got me into the annoying habit of letting roots and rocks reach up and grab my wandering toes. At one moment, shuffling along in mindless, sweaty reverie, the next face down on the rocky trails, cursing at myself for inattention and ineptitude. It isn't so much about the physical pain. It's the frustration of the second, and the third, and the fourth fall in a run. That's what boils me. The frustration of trying not to fall down, and falling down anyway. I knocked my left knee pretty hard, and it ached and clicked for a couple days under the scabs and bruises. I tore a hole in the palm of my hand that kept reopening in subsequent falls. At one point, I had to use the dog's leash, winding it around my palm as a tourniquet to staunch the blood running from the reopened wound. One night, I ran on the road because I just couldn't bear the thought of falling down. I started wearing my mountain bike gloves to protect my hands. Falling down hurts. But you know what? If you run in the trails, you're going to fall. You're going to trip. And sometimes you'll get bloody and bruised. And when you're tired, and it's hard to see that as a sign of life, but it is. You're still out there. Running your eight miles in the technical trails, you've still got blood to give. Your legs still work. Entropy may be nipping at your heels, but you've got the energy and ability to kick it in the teeth when it gets too close. Another valuable lesson from this is that the faster you run, the less you fall. That's right. I only fall when I'm putting in the slow stuff and trying to go easy. When I'm ripping out the tempo, even in the most technical of terrain, I don't fall. That's a life lesson of some sort. The demon roots of life are waiting for you to relax. That's when they grab you. And the third thing that the muses whispered to me while I was out in the trails is that relaxing into the pain doesn't actually remove the pain. In these hot, long trail runs, in these hard-edged tempo runs, on these rocky hill climbs, the pain will come. The discomfort in your muscles and your lungs. The pushing fatigue that runs counter to your self-image and expectations. That pain, it comes. It comes in different forms and at different times. Sometimes when it's expected and sometimes in disguise and by surprise. And the lesson we learn over and over again is that pain is part of endurance sport. It can't be avoided and it shouldn't be. When we find ourselves saying, Oh God, why is this so hard? We forget that the pain is a gift, and we need to stop fighting it and accept it. It's when we reach this point in our workout that we start to reap the benefits of our training, the physical benefits of pushing or holding on past the point where it starts to suck, and the underreported mental benefits of knowing you can hold on. And live in this place where discomfort is familiar. And when the fatigue comes, recognize it for the gift that it is. Stop trying to push through. Stop trying to grit your way through the workout. That's not the way to use the pain. Relax. Let that pain crawl in and curl up beside you. Shorten your stride. Pick up your cadence. Straighten up your form. Forget about the watch. Be in the moment with your guest. And enjoy the company, because just because it hurts doesn't mean it's bad. You don't have to stop. Relax, adjust, take a moment, 
to physically and mentally let go. The pain of the workout is neither good nor bad. It's just part of the journey. The gift you have that is unique to you is that you are exploring this forgotten neighborhood of pain. So those are the things that my muses whispered to me as I was lost in the dark secrets of my mental forests over the last few weeks. Are they worthy of ink and electrons? Maybe. It's not for me to decide. I'm just the vessel. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Tyler Wren, after all of our uh, running around this morning, here we are. So when you give us the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do and, and all these new enterprises you're involved in now. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I guess I was a professional cyclist for 13 years. And towards the end of my career, I founded this organization, Renegade Sports. And we organize the Farm to Fork Fitness Adventures, which started off with the Farm to Fork Fondo bicycle events. And uh, we've been branching out into, uh, we had our first running event scheduled for this year. And uh, we have different formats of bicycle events, all with the same message of supporting your local farmers and bringing the cycling and farming communities together and raising money for farm and food related nonprofits in these rural areas. So that's the quick and dirty version. So you're up in Vermont. That's right. Yeah. Um, I live in Burlington, Vermont, and Renegade Sports is based up here. Yep. So I ran the uh, Burlington Marathon last year, Vermont City Marathon. I did as well. I'm pretty yeah. sure you beat my time, though. I did it with my girlfriend. It was a fun day. Probably not. I crashed pretty hard around mile 17. So Yeah. But yeah, it's beautiful country is my point. It's amazingly beautiful country, especially this time of year. June, July, August. I mean, it gets hot, but it's beautiful country. The uh, lakes region up there. And it, I was looking at some of the tours you do. They're in just beautiful places, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Burlington is like heaven on earth in the summertime. But yes, our, our events are all up and down the East Coast as far down as North Carolina. Um, and the common thread is that it's beautiful farmland, rural areas. It's a wonderful thing to ride your bike past a nice farm and uh, through the quiet roads. Right. All that classic uh, big red New England barns and white houses and acres and acres of green. Yes. It's, uh, it's really quite stunning. Yeah. And the, kind of the point, the central message of these events is we all enjoy riding our bikes past those places and recreating around those. And so because we enjoy that, I think we have a unique responsibility to support those landowners and farmers who are maintaining those beautiful open spaces, um, especially as the pressures against farms increase and farms are getting developed and dairy farms are being lost in Vermont, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, a lot of the bigger farms and co-ops uh, will survive this current COVID thing pretty well because they still have their supply channels. But the smaller farms, the specialty farms, the boutique farms that we're trying to sell into restaurants directly or into the food service space, they went to zero. They got put on hold. Yeah, I think pretty much every industry seems to be affected by this and the farms are no exception. Uh, yeah, people don't realize that those supply chains are important for the farms and that that disruption, they can't just start selling to a grocery store if they were set up to sell to a college or a restaurant, et cetera. So it's a real issue and we're doing as much as we can, which is really not enough to try to support our farmers but um, just people realizing that that's an issue. A lot of farms are trying to be innovative and trying to ship products or offering farm stands. So if you can just do your part to try to see how you can support the farms in your area, that's really uh, can make a difference. Right. And I saw some foundational support as well for different, not necessarily charities, but people who are pulling together to try to get money for these farms to stay in business over the last couple of months, I saw that. That's good. It's local. Yep. I mean, our foundation, Renegade Foundation, um, we, I founded that a few years ago, which is now 501c3. The foundation is doing a lot of work to support the farms and the farm organizations in our regions, in the, in the areas where we operate. So renegadefoundation.org, making a donation there is a way to help some of those local farms in our regions. So tell me a story about uh, one of your local farms that you're proud of. And your interactions? That's a good question. Let's see. There's so many. I mean, really, it's funny. When I first started this whole thing, I did not speak the language. I grew up in the suburbs, so I didn't have any farmers in my social circle. And I was just knocking on people's doors and just trying to sell them on this whole idea. Uh, but now I've, I have a lot of farmers in my social circle and the conversations are a little bit easier. 
So there's a, the Snow Farm Vineyard in uh, Lake Champ in Vermont, in the Champlain Islands, is our venue for our event up there. And those farmers, Julie and Dave Lane, they were a dairy farm for a few generations. Uh, David's father and his father before him, beautiful track of land. And about, I don't know, 30 years ago, Dave realized that the dairy industry, the wholesale dairy industry, was the future was not too bright. So he reinvented the farm by planting grapes, building a new barn, starting a, the vineyard and a winery. He makes the wine on site. And now he hosts events. He has a tasting room. They sell maple syrup as well. They sold off the herd, but they still make hay and corn. So it's just this example of the farmer diversifying and then getting into websites and social media. And it's just people don't realize how much of a financial risk that is. I mean, he had to reinvent the, total, the, the farm that had been operating for years to do this. So so you can kind of go there and just be like, wow, this place is great, but not realize the vision, financial risk that went into creating a place like that. So it's really inspiring to kind of get to know these people and hear their stories on how they've diversified like that. So when you see a farm stand or a farm that has an, a dairy farm that has an ice cream shop or anything like that, I really uh, hope people can go out and support that because those are the ones who are really trying hard to keep that farm in business. Going back to you were a pro cyclist for many years and I see I talked to a lot of the pros and I see that they have a rough transition sometimes from the going pro to whatever they're going to do next in life because if you're going to ride or run or do anything at a high level that's a hundred and plus percent commitment in your life and you really don't have a lot of room to sort of get organized around what are you going to do next right so but you seem to have made this transition pretty well. And how did you get from there to farm to fork? That's a great question. I think you hit the nail on the head there. The real unique thing about being a pro cyclist, um, probably any pro athlete is like you are surrounded, all of your peers and all of your social group there, these people who are exceptionally talented and exceptionally driven are doing what they're passionate about or devoting their lives to their passion. And that's a really unique sort of bubble that you're in. And I would see a lot of my friends and teammates uh, retire and then really struggle to find that again. I mean, once you have that in your life for decade plus living that type of lifestyle, it's hard to just go to an office job and sort of leave that all behind. So a lot of guys will kind of really struggle and be depressed and, and really struggle to find what's next. Also, because you don't have the work experience to get a good job too, because you, you sort of have this 10 plus year hole in your resume in terms of um, traditional work experience. So I thought about that really hard and I wanted to make sure that I've always followed the non-traditional path and that's just sort of my style and I, and I wanted to find something that I was equally as passionate about. And um, I had this great professor in college who said, uh, he told me the shower test. He said, when you get up in the morning, what are you thinking about in the shower? What's getting you jazzed up about the day? And for a long time, it was riding my bike as fast as I could and that training for that day or the race that day. And, and that started to, to wane towards the end of my career. I started to think about what's next. And so it took a, two, three years to consider how I was going to fill that hole. And I went to business school. I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, this idea slowly started to germinate in my head. I was living in a rural area. So I started to have farmers in my social circle. And I remember one trip I took out to California for a race. We'd get there a couple of days beforehand and you go out for the local ride. And, and every year the, the, the routes were changing because these rural areas kept getting developed. And I was like, wow, it's like really impacts the cyclists riding routes when farms get developed. And that was sort of the genesis of that idea that I slowly developed. And then the final year of my career, I worked out a deal with my team where I was able to kind of juggle the racing and then also planning a big event. And you're absolutely right where we live and on the West Coast as well. Those family farms, those three generation or four generation family farms, nobody's going to buy that farm and keep it as a farm, typically. It's going to get redeveloped or it's going to get abandoned. It's going to turn into houses. It might go to industrial. It might be something else, right? But it's not going to stay a farm because it's just not compelling business-wise for people to do that. What's funny, before this pandemic kicked in, we were seeing a bit of resurgence in the local farming community where we're seeing there was a premium to being able to get source stuff locally and know its providence and know where it came from, the different stuff and the quality stuff. And those are the folks who sort of got uh, the whammy here 
with the pandemic. Like I said, it's, it's a hard life without being a farmer. And a lot of times they are toiling in anonymity. They're a wholesale farm, but they're very proud people. And sometimes if there's not a way to support them with the farm stand, if you can just, if you see a farmer in your area, you're off for a ride, just saying thank you for being a farmer goes a long way. That's a message that we try to send to really help them. But Obviously, that doesn't go enough. The pandemic um, supporting them is really going to be the best way. Yeah. So these rides you do, it's a lot of sort of multi-day Fondo stuff, like up in in those islands in Champlain. You're going to ride, what, 20, 30 miles a day and sales pace and then drink wine and eat Mm. cheese and move on (laughs) to the next place? Yeah. So the format is um, the traditional format, our farm to fork Fondo, which is our kind of our signature offering. We have a dinner the night before the ride. So like on a Saturday night, uh, it's called the Meet the Farmers Dinner. So all of the participating farm families who are hosting aid stations the next day attend this dinner that you can buy tickets to a locally sourced, really fancy farm to table dinner with a caterer on the farm. It's a beautiful setting. And then the day of the ride, the next day, we have a traditional mass start for all the cyclists. And so it's a non-competitive ride. And it's basically an organized ride where you get to choose the distance that's right for you and stop at farms along the way. So uh, the aid stations are all at local farms. And each aid station has a gourmet catered treat with ingredients from that farm. So your registration fees are supporting these these farms and we're sourcing it from them and you're eating healthy food that also has that gourmet flair and you get to meet the farmers too. They're there typically at the aid station. Sometimes you can meet the goats or get a tour of the farm or um, if they have that available. But uh, really, it's just like I said, trying to bridge that gap between the cycling community and the farming community, which are both great, great groups of people. So what kind of uh, clientele do you get to show up for these? We get a broad mix. These are typically destination events. So we get people coming in from outside of the area. We will always have 20 plus states represented at each event. You know, I think the average age is 49. And the one thing that we're really proud of is we have about uh, 50, actually just went over 51% of female participation, where the normal bicycle event is 15% female. So we're really proud of the fact that we provide uh, an inclusive experience. And I think that stat attest to that. I know you have the signature one up uh, in the Champlain region, but where are the other ones? We have events in the Finger Lakes, New York's wine region. Sure. Um, yep. Uh, Hudson Valley with all the apples. We've had an event in Maine where we had a post-ride lobster bake, blueberry farms. We have one in the Berkshires, which is Western Massachusetts, which is one of the areas that kind of pioneered the farm-to-table experience. The uh, Pennsylvania Dutch region, which is all of the Amish farms that we visit, that's a really unique experience and probably the most beautiful farmland of all of our tours. And then uh, Shenandoah, Virginia, another beautiful location uh, in between the Shenandoah Mountains. And then down in Western North Carolina as well. Uh, we were in Asheville last year, and now we're in Brevard, which is nearby. So a big farm table movement there. So with your crowds over the years, what have you seen to be the big aha moments with people? you have any good stories where somebody said something that sort of blew you away? Yeah, there's so many stories. One of the things that we do as well is that we have this thing called the volunteer competition. So we each of the aid stations is staffed by like a local community group as well. So whether it's the local 4-H club or the Audubon Society, things like that, that the living in rural areas is a lot different than in the suburbs of the cities where a lot of our participants come from. And these local community groups are the lifeblood. So just kind of getting those people together with our participants as well, and kind of like having that opportunity for them to talk about what their organization does. Uh, We have a lot of farmland preservation trusts to just kind of educate people on what kind of pressures the farms are facing. So we try to not just have aha moments, but kind of have a continual education with our participants and connecting all of these groups so that people can just be generally aware throughout the year uh, about these issues. So you had a plan going into this and uh, you've been executing on that. What has surprised you so far? What's happened that you didn't think was going to happen? Are you talking about the pandemic or the... I didn't think... (laughs) I mean, aside from that, I mean, well, that's a good example. The pandemic is something that no one planned for, I guess. Well, some people plan for it, but in the event world, a lot of events have just canceled or are waiting to cancel. But I think this is a great 
example of the great team that we have here at Renegade Sports. You know, we have several full-time people working on our events. Um, it takes a lot of time and energy to produce an event. And so we really wanted to just be innovative and do something different where we could provide our core experience without having to just cancel or wait till next year. So we started providing these self-guided tours where people can go to these regions and do the routes and like exchange tokens for the farm experience at the farms to do it on their own. We're doing these small group tours. And now we have uh, the go ahead to do a small Fondo event in Vermont this year for 150 people uh, with social distance protocols. So, I mean, I think the business plan you write on paper is always going to be written in pencil at the beginning. I had thoughts of growing this to a national event series and Going to new regions is more difficult than I thought. Like the Farm to Fork brand name is not strong enough for us to go to Texas and get a thousand people right away. It just takes a lot of marketing dollars to to really make that happen. And uh, maybe just discovering how important the marketing is and how expensive the marketing is to get a new event going. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I saw that you're still putting on events and I don't think those are super high risk because you're in the middle of nowhere for all these, right? And it's not a lot of people. It's not like the Chicago Marathon. So oh, no. I would say there's less risk in doing a Fonda with you than me going down to my local grocery store. So I agree with that. It's all outdoors. There's no communal travel. The group sizes are no larger than 20 people. And even then we're separating them out. So Yep, it's all good. So hopefully we'll be digging out of this soon. But no, I just wanted to touch base with you because you seem to be one of those people who has been able to combine what you, you know a lot of things that you like right? You'd be able to successfully combine your work and what you love to do and almost make a living from it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was instilled at a very early age to kind of follow my dreams. My mom was a professional ballerina and that was her adult career until her mid thirties. And so they were very supportive of me following untraditional paths. And I graduated with a degree in finance and all my peers were getting six figure salaries and on wall street and i moved back in with my mom and raced my bike and i you know i couldn't have been (laughs) happier i thought they were the fools (laughs) yeah you probably have some great stories from being out on the bike tours and and all that stuff so it's going to be a full life for you yeah i got got to travel internationally and learn new language and uh, see a lot of awesome places so couldn't be happier all right, man. Well, we'll let you go. So if people want to do the good thing, find your foundation, find your bike routes, where do they find them? Yeah, they can head to farmtoforkfitness.com for all the Farm to Fork Fitness adventures and then renegadefoundation.org. And that's with a W, W renegadefoundation.org. Yep. yep. <clears throat> Ren, like the bird, Ren. Exactly. Yep. All right, man. Thanks for the time. Appreciate Thank you, Chris. It. Great. Yeah, all great right. to chat with you. Have a great summer. Yeah, bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. A brief history of agriculture. People gotta eat. Around 200,000 years ago, our current branch of hominids showed up on the scene. That's us, Homo sapiens. We weren't the only hominids around, but we had some special mutations that made us smart and curious and dangerous. And we were omnivores. That means we ate anything and everything we could get our hands on. We were adaptable. We ate differently as we expanded into the different climates and ecosystems. Some of us might survive on mollusks at the seashore, while others might find themselves scavenging dead animals and bugs in the desert. And not just animals, we ate a lot of plants, too. We figured out which plants ripened when, where the berries would be available, what time of year. We ate the nuts, the seeds, and the plants with the big roots. And we figured out how to grind and use fire to break down these plants' defenses and make them edible and more efficient. And we maximized calories. Archaeology has found these seeds of the plants we ate charred from our fires from 100,000 plus years ago. And this was before the last Ice Age. That's right. People think about Ice Ages and they, they, you know, they think about it like they think about the Grand Canyon. They know it's there and it's big, but they really don't appreciate it until they're looking over the edge. If you had been there while we were munching our berries and bugs in southern Europe, Most of the northern and southern uh, ends of the planet were under giant ice sheets. 
the last glacial maximum was only 22,000 years ago, meaning that's the maximum coverage of the glaciers. The oceans were 400 feet lower, and the global temperatures were 11 degrees cooler. The world was very dry because all the water was locked up in ice. But we were there, and we were eating whatever we could find. And since the oceans were much lower, and the southern regions closer to the equator were much cooler, it left a lot of open land for these Paleolithic people to hunt and gather on. During these glacial maxima, there was a land called Doggerland, which connected the Netherlands and Jutland to England. Basically, England was an isthmus of Europe instead of being an island, and the early hunter-gatherers just walked across the channel to the British Isles. Likewise, there was a bridge from Siberia to North America across the Bering Sea that allowed Siberian hunters and gatherers to walk all the way down to the tip of Chile. And although there's ever-emerging evidence of multiple population routes, the point is that we early ultra-runners spread out across the world very quickly. And then we caught a break because the glaciers, they receded. Somewhere around 10,000 years ago, probably in the Fertile Crescent of what is now Israel, Jordan, and bits of other countries, some tired Homo sapiens leaned back and said, Hey, how about instead of chasing these dang wild pigs and goats and cows around in the country, why don't we just grab a couple and keep them? No more running around the world. Now we could just hang out by the fire and eat some stored animals instead. Domestication. Around the same time, some other bright chappy said, Hey, you know these seeds we're collecting and eating? How about we plant some so we have a ready source next year? And just like that, we were farming. And it changed everything. It changed us. It changed the animals we lived with. It changed pests and diseases. It changed or rather enabled our culture and society. It wasn't all good for us. Those hunter-gatherers certainly had some issues with access to quality health care, but generally they were taller and lived longer than the farmers who came after them. But the farmers won out. And what we see in the DNA is that the farmers didn't wholesale replace the hunter-gatherers. The farmers absorbed them. The technology of farming absorbed the hunter-gatherers. And I'm sure there was some old hunter-gatherer guy, we'll call him Og, who bemoaned that in his day you didn't milk the cow. In his day you chased the cow down and hit it with a pointy stick. That's what real men did. None of this namby-pamby farming life stuff. That's not what the gods wanted. And speaking of cows, they weren't so cute back in the day. The wild oryx were more like modern-day yaks or buffaloes. They weighed a ton or more and stood six foot tall and had three foot pointy horns. These are the big guys, the ones you see on the cave paintings. And it's said that the last wild oryx were in a Polish forest until the 1620s. They used to roam all over Europe and India, Africa, Asia, and they were very much part of our story. Until some bright hunter-gatherer said, hey, let's take one of these home as a pet. So the oryx DNA still exists inside our current cattle. As with all our domesticated animals and plants, they've been changed by us into forms that provide the outcomes that we're interested in. More flesh, fatter fruits, sweeter melons. Over these last 10,000 years, we have overtly selected the species and traits that we like. You might say that's a bad deal for those domesticated plants and animals, but it's truly symbiotic. Who can look at hundreds of thousands of acres of corn across the Midwest and not wonder who domesticated whom? It's been a pretty successful bargain for them. And they've changed us as well. For example, around 5,000 years ago, we started to develop a mutation that allows many of us to digest dairy products. And there are other examples. It's still evolution. It's just a form of human-directed evolution environmental evolution. And the shift into farming life also directed the evolution of other species. Our friends, uh, the house mouse and the rat, they came along for the ride. 
Lots of lovely infectious diseases made the leap from animals into a ready pool of densely settled humans. Farming enabled cities and empires, but also plagues and extinctions. But once those first seeds were scattered in the Fertile Crescent, things started to accelerate. We figured out that the seeds grew better if we plowed the soil, and we built irrigation canals to control the rivers. And now that we could farm up more than enough food, we had extra people, extra people available to do other things like fight wars and build pyramids. Farming took over the world and enabled a good population growth for the next couple thousand years. The next really big thing, really quite recently, was a device called the moldboard plow that the Europeans came up with in the 1700s, which enabled a big jump in productivity. Then the tractors and the combines came in the 20th century, and finally after World War II there was another big jump in productivity with modern farming techniques, fertilizer, pesticides, and yes, gene tweaking. What would Og have thought, sitting by his cave mouth, tending the fire, chewing the marrow out of a, an auric bone with greasy hands and stained teeth? What would he have thought? Maybe he would have thought about all the same things that we think about. His mate, his children, the tribe across the river, the wandering lions. The big impact of all this productivity is that we can produce something like 300% more food with substantially less Homo sapiens working on it. Those Homo sapiens that are freed up can jaunt off to the big city and become mascara salesmen or fry cooks. The challenge we face is that we've hit the wall in terms of not only productivity but also in terms of sustainability. We can produce enough food, but it comes at a cost to the environment and the species that we've domesticated. And now you might say, no problem. We'll just go back to hunting and gathering like in the good old days. But the fly in that oatmeal is that the world could support maybe 100 million hunter-gatherers, and we've got 7.8 billion Homo sapiens to feed today globally. Interestingly, it took us 200,000 years to get to a billion people and only 200 years to get to 7.8 billion people. Agriculture has made us who we are. And I was looking for a quote and it's a quote I remember that struck me. I was looking for this quote to close this piece out. And I couldn't find it. But it's funny. You have these moments and memories that stick with you where you remember, or I suppose you imagine, the exact place and time. And the place and time I remember was somewhere in my 20s, flying somewhere internationally, reading some throwaway paperback version of either Camus' The Stranger or Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. I can't remember which. And it may all be imagined, but it sticks in my memory that it was one of those. And I remember the flight was nearing its end and I would soon have to bustle off the plane with the rest of the herd, and I was rushing to finish the final pages. I was a restless soul in my 20s. I thought there should be answers to all of life's big questions. Straightforward, easy answers. I suppose we're all restless and searching in our youth. And in the narrative I was reading, the author, the protagonist, finally finishes all his travels and troubles, and retires to his simple home, and he finds that beyond all the striving and chaos of life, there is one simple truth, and that truth is to till your garden. Till your garden. I can't find that quote, so I'll leave you with another. By the famous author and philosopher Anonymous, gardening is cheaper than therapy, and you get tomatoes. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have planted and weeded and harvested episode 4-436 of the Run Run Live podcast. Well, like I said, still working from home. I pushed my mileage up a notch by adding a long run in Sunday. This weekend I'll do three hours or so. 
but this is also, you got to remember, this is a whole weekend worth of mileage. So I do a fairly hard workout or a long run on Friday, then I do a long ride on Saturday, and then I do a long run on Sunday. And with the extra mileage, I'm way ahead of the buzzard. I'm five days ahead of the buzzard for my run across Tennessee. I'm closing in. I should finish around August 20th, I'm guessing. So there you go. I'll get my belt buckle for the 1,000 kilometers across Tennessee. And I feel strong. I've been having some fatigue. I think it's the heat. I need to watch my hydration at times, but I feel strong. And Ollie, Ollie's been getting out with me on most runs. He's still crazy, but he's he's good with people and other dogs in the woods, so I can let him off leash for the most part. And his longest run so far is 14 miles, and that in the humidity, so he's pretty good. He's lost all that baby fat. He's lean and hard, a real athlete. So my plan to run the Wapak and back on September 7th has been pretty much finalized. It is 43 miles of technical mountain running. Eric's coming up from Missouri. I plan to log the first 26.2 as my two, what is that, 2020 Boston Marathon. And that will be my 21st Boston Marathon, I think. And we've, so we've done it all now, right? We've had the storms and the heat and the bombs, and now we get the trails. I went out a few weeks back with my buddy, Paul, and we did some of the course. We did 13 miles or so on the Wapak, and it was beautiful, bright, a beautiful July day. We were out for just under uh, four hours, and I felt fine. So, Eric, make sure to bring your camera, and we'll make one of those cool race movies that you make. I've been reading a lot, working a lot. I read my way through a five-book sci-fi series called The Lost Fleet. And who knows when I'll need to know how to maneuver a space fleet in battle at near-relativistic speeds. But when I do, I'll be ready. Right? (laughs) And after WAPAC, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'll train for. There's no races, right? Maybe I'll treat the Groton Marathon as a real race and train for it. Who knows? I'm out of qualification, and I'm going to be 58 in November. And this means that I still have to qualify at the harder standard if I want to get back into Boston. But I've got these little voices inside that are whispering, you know, this just isn't that important anymore. Find something else to do. I read uh, Ricky Gates' book about running across America last night. Yeah, last night. took me about two hours. It was mostly photos. I still think I'd like to do that at some point, run across America or something like that. It seems so real and visceral. seems worthy. I got him uh, into, I I emailed him, and we're going to have a chat if I can arrange it. Seems like he's got some good stories. So out running, I've been wearing my old two-bottle slant pack on my trail runs. Yeah, I know I've had it for 20-something years. I don't need the bottles, uh, but I use the pack to carry my old iPhone so I can listen to podcasts without having to actually carry the phone in my hand. And that's my kit, right? I have a bottle in one hand, the dog's leash wrapped around the other, my Jaybird, Tara, whatever, Bluetooth headphones, and the old two-bottle waste pack to carry my phone. And it occurred to me, as I'm out there doing this, that, hey, I've got this slant pack with two empty bottle slots. I can use that to pick up litter. So my new game is I keep a eye out on my road sections for cans and bottles that have been thrown out of the window of passing cars. And I've made a game out of trying to pick up my two-can quota on my runs. And most of them I can return for a nickel with my other recyclables. So there you go. We play these games, don't we? We tell these stories. Each run, each set of runs is its own narrative. The run is a is an empty envelope that we fill with our stories. In this isolated world of apocalypse, we create stories to fill the void, to find meaning, to keep sane. I read a great article on not having enough time to do everything you want. And I'll link to it here. The author, Kira Newman, explains how that that feeling of never having enough time, how that works. 
if the work you do gives you a sense of accomplishment, you don't see it as wasted time, right? You don't feel the time crunch if you feel like you're accomplishing something. So instead of being 100 things you have to do before you can do what you want, it's the list of things that you have accomplished instead or can accomplish. It's a different way of looking at it. There's, there's a subtle difference, and that makes all the difference on how you perceive the time spent and the time scarcity. When we see our activities as in conflict with each other, we also feel more stress about time scarcity. I can either do this or I can do that. They compete for the same time resource. People who see those competing activities as additive instead and congruent, they don't feel the time stress. It's not this or that in their minds. It's this and that. And again, there's a subtle difference, but it's really a big one in terms of the emotion, the perception of your time and your time scarcity. And what it really comes down to is a sense of control. If you feel like you're in control of your time, you won't feel time stress for the same amount of activity. And that's why planning sometimes helps until it doesn't help. Like right now, I'm having one of those days where my plan had me finish my workouts and the podcast and on my way to the Cape, oh, an hour or two ago. And that didn't happen. And now I'm throwing things out of the boat to keep floating, to keep up. So it turns out that uh, money doesn't help either. There's a direct correlation between how much money you make and how much stress you have about time. There is. But it's not the correlation you'd expect. Rich people see their time as more valuable, and they have more time stress. Yeah. So what can you do? Why do you care? Well, you can't do everything. But it is up to you. You choose a comfortable mix of the things you want to do and the things you need to do. And you don't stress about it. You can work out when you get to the Cape. You don't really need to clean the chain on your bike. You do what you can. You let the rest go. And it turns out that time stress has nothing to do with how much time you have. Because we all have the same amount of time, right? Time stress is caused by the way you value your time and its use. So make your decisions, find comfort in that control. You have the control over your choice and nobody's going to care in 14,000 years whether you clean the toilets today. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. To Take You Out is track number 14 from Brian Sheff, the rock opera, The Nays, called Bobby Lefebvre, which I thought I put in the last show, but I think I missed it because, hey, you know, I was behind schedule and in a rush. Cheers. Made him 
she never found the Lord Did you hear where Bobby went? He's gunning for Brian and he's hell-bent on But the gap's in his head and He won't stop till he sees our Savior dead That's what Bobby said